WTOP. Welcome to Talk the Talk. I'm Bill Newman. And I'm Buzz Eisenberg. And on the front page of yesterday's Boston Globe, above the fold, a large story, a big headline, a very uh, moving photograph as well. Headline, Sharpies and Ribbons, Christian Jewish Congregations congregations Come Together Amid Bomb Threats by Brookhauser Globe staff. Brookhauser, of course, the former editor of the Daily Hampshire Gazette, distinguished author as well. An article that begins, a news story that begins, Dateline Northampton. Rabbi Ricky Kozowski opened her mail November 19th to find a bomb threat against her synagogue. Brooke Hauser, thank you so much for joining us. Rabbi Ricky Kozowski, thank you so much for joining us. Let's start, if we might, Brooke Hauser, tell us why you wanted to write this story and tell us what it is, if you would, please. Sure. Um, hi, Bill. It's so good to see you. I know this is radio, but I can see your face and your beard and you look great. <laughs> <laughs> and, you, um, and you too, and we've missed you. You like my beard too. Okay. Um, no, I, no, the look great I, part, Brooke. <laughs> okay. Thank you. I have been um, really thinking about the um, local, local repercussions of the Israel-Hamas war since it um, erupted on, you know, after October 7th. And um, just, I've been thinking about it constantly and I've been looking for stories that capture what it feels like to be alive during this time and live in a community. And there's been a lot of, you know, um, polarization, obviously, and, um, but also stories of people coming together and stories of resilience. And I was, I think in some part of my mind looking for a story that was um, more hopeful. And I, you know, work at the Boston Globe now. I still live in the Valley, but um, there, I saw a couple, a few different like short articles about uh, the ribbons that were put up at, um, you know, Beit Hava Synagogue, which shares the space with Fonts Congregational Church inside Bombic Center for Arts and Equity and thought it was a really nice story. And originally I thought, you know, that I too would do kind of like a short story and turn it around quick, quickly and file it the next day kind of thing. But then I spoke with um, Ricky Kozowski and um, Marissa Eggerstrom and Cassandra Holden, the three, you know, there's also the preschool director, but these are the the three people I spoke to and realized that there was a much deeper story here about um, the relationship in particular between the rabbi and the pastor that I thought was really special and unusual. And so I wanted to do a bigger story on that. Yeah. And Cassandra, we should point out, is the executive director of the Bombex, uh, Ricky Kozowski, the rabbi at Beit Havah, and you mentioned the pastor of the a congregational church. They all share space at Bombex. I, I would love to know this, if you can share it uh, to the extent you can. The Boston Globe gave this enormous prominence. I mean, this is a big story, uh, lot, lots of space. I was wondering what, I understand now what moved you, what moved the Globe? I can't, I, you know, I, I don't really, I mean, I'm part of the Globe. So, you know, I made a, a big pitch to, um, we, we have stories that sometimes we'll say, you know, we think this could be a good enterprise story or a good story for consideration. So it was something that we offered 
to the news editors um, who work on the front page and and they accepted it. Um, I think we're always looking for stories that respond to the moment that we're in and there's a lot of interaction among all the different editors. So um, this was an interesting situation because I had started reporting the story on the ribbons, um, I guess late last week, and then Sunday morning, um, you know, there was another bomb threat made against the synagogue. And I asked if I could help cover that for Metro as a news brief because I already had relationships with some of the people involved and just really felt it was an important story to cover. And so I did that and worked with um, Sean Cotter, who's a you know police reporter, and he kind of handled the police side of things, and I handled the Northampton side of things, getting quotes, and we put it together. And when I read the article that we had worked on together um, in an early stage, I realized because of his reporting that these threats were made across the state. There were other threats that happened across the country, um, and it was much more widespread than I knew because all I knew that morning was that Beit Haba had gotten a threat, you know, and, and, and that there were multiple threats, but I didn't know the extent of it. Well, let me turn, if I might, to Rabbi Ricky Kozowski, who is the rabbi at Beit Haba, the Reformed Congregation in Florence, and ask you, Rabbi, to comment on this. On one hand, this is a very beautiful and hopeful story. The ribbons with the messages, 150 ribbons fluttering from the ceiling, covered with messages, you belong, may all who are mourning know they are not alone. Beautiful story, beautifully written by Brooke Hauser. And then near the end, there is this reference to another bomb threat. It's like on one hand, something beautiful happened that, and I now, you hear the Boston Globe now being crinkled in my hands. Um, <laughs> a beautiful, a beautiful uh, story uh, of, of, of hope. And yet, near the end, this, quote, two days later on Sunday, another bomb threat was sent to the synagogue, one of multiple bomb threats to synagogues across the state before the church's morning service and the synagogue's afternoon religious school. And... The story goes on from there. We're going to hear a bit more in just a moment. Rabbi, on one hand, something beautiful. On the other hand, a repetition of a bomb threat and bomb threats to synagogues and temples across the state and the country. How does that all make you feel? Well, you know, Bill, I think that Brooke just did such an incredible, beautiful article. Like we are just, you know, just in awe of her article because she really held up the story of the relationship. So when the second bomb threat happened, well, first of all, we we were sort of experienced. It was kind of like we had gone through a drill as a team. I mean, I'm in a very unique position because it's a church and a synagogue sharing space in a multicultural arts center with led by three, four even, powerful, strong women who enjoy each other. So we had we had a network. I mean, that's just what's so incredible about it. So, um, I, you know, there wasn't the level of like total fear. There was the level of like, okay, we know what to do. This is annoying. It's eight in the morning. I was planning on sleeping in on Sunday morning for once. And, but I just quickly mobilized as did Cassandra Holden, the director of Bombix. And in the moment, our main concern also was our pastor, friend Marissa Agerstrom, who was who had a service at ten and a musician coming at nine, and 
you know, do they cancel? And, you know, so being able to pivot and work together uh, was really just an incredible difference as opposed to a level of fear that most of, I'll just say, is most of the other 250 or so synagogues that received this threat over the weekend that were evacuating Shabbat services and Sunday school programs and having to decide, do they notify all the parents right away? And, you know, so we, we, we had a different experience for the second time around. To you as a reporter, Brooke Hauser, and as, of course, as an editor, as a longtime journalist, did this relationship aspect of the story make it different than other uh, stories about the threats to uh, synagogues across the country and the state? Oh, definitely. I mean, yeah, and by the way, like I learned about the other threats, you know, as I was going, I learned more about what was happening. But yeah, the relationship is what made me want to do the story. I mean, the ribbons are beautiful and, you know, just to explain what happened a little bit more, you know, after the first bomb threat was made against Berhava, um, the four women that we've talked about, you know, Bombic's executive director, the rabbi, the pastor, and um, the preschool director got together and talked about it. And Ricky, you know, was, um, you know, pointed about how how she felt and some Jewish members of the congregation and community felt um, after October 7th. And so they ended up talking, like having a much more, you know, wide ranging conversation. And from that, the pastor, Marissa, came out of that and thought, you know, there's a real need to affirm, you know, Jewish people's like feelings and how they're feeling right now and their humanity and everyone's humanity. And so it became this kind of community art project where she then secretly passed out um, about 150 ribbons to members of the Mombix community who then wrote the messages that they secretly strung up from cables hanging down from the sanctuary wall. So that's, when we're talking about the ribbons, like that's the project and that's lovely, but what's behind that? I'm sorry about the parakeet, that's <laughs> chirping a metaphor. <laughs> what's, what's behind that story is the story of a relationship. And to me, that was what was so compelling about it. Um, and that the two, you know, Cassandra was also wonderful. Like the three, Cassandra, Ricky, and Marissa were just, each one of them was so eloquent and um, passionate in the way that they spoke. And I just realized, like, I need to hear them more at length. Like, I want this to be a conversation that I can kind of, you know, convey because um, it's, it's what's happening right now is complicated and there are a lot of feelings involved. And um, as Marissa said, she wasn't, you know, they, they can't make a statement for all people for all time, but they can, you know, talk about the relationships that they have in their shared space where everybody loves and prays and works and lives together. And I thought that was a really beautiful sentiment. It is, it was, and it reads beautifully as well. You had an amazing quote, I think, from Rabbi, Rabbi Ricky about the uh, looking at the ribbons that were uh, placed, I guess, from uh, pillars and uh, from the ceiling of, of Bombex. Um, and that quote, I thought, was really just so moving about straining. Maybe you could share that quote. Could you do that? Or would you? Sure, I could do that. Um, well, I tried to describe for people who couldn't be there what it looked like. And I said that the effect is as delicate as the breeze that ripples through the dangling ribbons, which visitors have to crane their necks to read. That effort is part of the beauty of the project, said Kozowski. Adding that to understand each other, sometimes we need to strain our neck. 
Yeah, I, a few words saying so much. It's really, it's really brilliant writing. I really, really appreciate that about the article. Ricky, um, to strain our necks to make a point, can you explain that a bit more for us? Well, you know, I, there, uh, you know, as Brooke said, there had been a few other, um, you know, this the press release on this really attracted so much attention. I think it is this positive, unique, very unique story, and this is just dismal, horrible time that we're experiencing. And there had been another reporter who was trying to read the um, last week, who was trying to read the ribbons and just couldn't really. And and I just kept thinking about that image of like the straining the neck. And I and there's even a Jewish story about you know, a, a beggar who has to strain his neck. There's a whole thing. And I've just, there's something about that. Like when, how do we use our voice? You know, are we, are we like the shofar that we blow on the high holidays where we're really amplifying a voice or are we really straining to hear each other and to even be heard? And the relationship piece of this story, it, it's not that, it's not that um, the depth was necessarily already there, but I think the seeds were already there between Pastor Marissa Eggerstrom and I. And uh, we certainly, uh, are, you know, we already have a shared rich history, but this experience of the bomb threat, the first one, really pushed us. We'd already been in deep conversation since probably October 8th, I would say, is when our October 8th and 9th is when this, our conversation with each other really began and she's remarkable already in terms of listening and writing in ways that I that I haven't seen amongst my other peers you know in the in in, in much of the faith community that I'm a part of um, you know a multi-faith relationships but um, but it is it's like it still was a straining you know as much as we think we understand we don't really understand and there's we were able to be vulnerable with each other with each other the conclusion of this piece by Brooke Hauser in yesterday's Globe was very, very moving to me. Uh, in the article, Brooke, you write about how after the second bomb threat, the congregants arrived and they were instructed by the police not to enter the building, and so they went outside. And I would appreciate it if you would share those last few sentences with us because I think yeah. they're, they are moving. They were very moving to me. And as a subscriber to the Boston Globe, I want you to know how much I appreciate it. Thanks, mm. um, I, you know, I showed up that Sunday um, and, you know, saw the congregants um, across the street. And so I'll start with, they gathered outside for prayers, communion and carols across the street from the church under Sojourner Truth's gaze. The fire department supplied a table and chairs. A musician showed up with a guitar. Others brought hot drinks. For a minute, it seemed they'd have no communion bread. It was still inside the church. But then Kozowski remembered she had a hunk of leftover challah in the car. The rabbi shared a blessing. The pastor said, amen. And the little crowd broke bread and laughed and sang together. Brooke Hauser, Boston Globe reporter, former editor of the Daily Hampshire Gazette. We <laughs> really appreciate your time. I really appreciate your writing for the Globe. Ricky Kozowski, thank you so very much. We'll be back with more on the bomb threats debate of Hava right after this. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. Find local news and local talk for the Valley. If we didn't 
go for this project, the cost to repair the schools is estimated at 80 million, and we don't get help with that. So this vote is the absolutely the smartest financial choice, and it's getting a building that we desperately need for our educators and for our students. Where the heart of the Pioneer Valley lives. 101.5 and 1400 WHMP. News, information, and the arts. What's cooking at River Valley Co-op? Here's avid eater, grocery shopper, and co-op member, Bill Newman. Sweeten up your holiday parties with gingerbread cookies, chocolate hazelnut seashells, vanilla Hanukkah cookies, and mini Dresden Stolen. It's all at the co-op. Sweet treats, the holiday roast, fresh seafood, beer and wine, and lots and lots and lots of local farm fruits and vegetables. Do a little gift shopping, too. River Valley Co-op, wild about local. Everyone is welcome. The Paul Parent Garden Club, every Sunday, 6 to 8 a.m. Brought to you by Weinzick Nursery, locally owned and operated since 1954. Visit Mike, Amity, John, and the rest of the team at Weinzick Nursery, Route 9 in Hadley, and online at weinzicknursery.com. Massachusetts now requires you to recycle fluorescent and other mercury-containing bulbs. A tiny amount of mercury is an essential element in energy-efficient lighting. But when you throw these bulbs in the trash, they can break and release mercury into the environment. Do your part. Keep mercury out of the environment. Recycle used fluorescent bulbs. For convenient recycling solutions, visit lamprecycle.org or almr.org. Homeowners, visit earth911.org for a drop-off center near you. Brought to you by the National Electrical Manufacturers Association. A little bit of hammering and a little bit of humoring. Today's Homeowner with Danny Lipford. Home improvement ideas and advice. Today's Homeowner with Danny Lipford. Sundays at noon, 101-5-1400-WHMP. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. WHMP. We continue our discussion about the bomb threats to Beta Hava, the... Jewish congregation in Florence, and I want to reference a piece by Brett Stevens, the opinion columnist, the conservative opinion columnist in the New York Times today, why I can't stop writing about October 7th. I want to share a few sentences of that piece with you. A few weeks ago, writes Brett Stevens, my mother was watching footage of a Jewish student being taunted and mobbed by anti-Israel demonstrators at Harvard she said, I was born in hiding. I don't want to die in hiding. Brett Stevens then describes his mother's journey. She sa he says, my mother was born in Milan in 1940 to a family that had fled the Bolsheviks in Moscow, and then a few years later, the Nazis in Berlin. She was baptized to avoid suspicion. One of her earliest memories is of being abruptly hidden under a nun's habit it was only after the war that she arrived in New York as a refugee that she learned she was Jewish. America to her was the land in which you didn't have to hide. The next sentence, writes Brett Stevens, that's no longer true. He says this, just two more sentences if I might. Everything that was true before October 7th became more so after it. He goes on to describe the exponential increase in hate crimes against Jews in the United States over the past few years, and writes this, quote, this is likely to get worse. A Harvard-Harris poll conducted this month finds that 44% of Americans ages 25 to 34 
and a whopping 67% of those ages 18 to 24, get this, quote, agree with the proposition that Jews as a class are oppressors. Jews as a class are oppressors, a belief held by 67% of persons ages 18 to 24. By contrast, Stevens writes, only 9% of Americans over 65 feel that way. Quote, the same generation that received the most instruction in the virtues of tolerance is now the most anti-Semitic in recent memory. His conclusion from this article that began with his mother saying, I was born in hiding, she told me. It ends, I don't think my mom will die in hiding. I wonder about my kids. What say you to that, Ricky Kozowski, Rabbi? Oh, wow. Um, yeah, I have the article here, too. Um, you know, I, it's, 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 these are all good points. You know, I relate to every single thing. Well, not every single, but I'm not going to get that close. But I, I relate to everything he says. And we're, we're, that's just the Harvard poll that he quoted is, it's kind of horrifying you know, that 60, 67% of people 18 to 24 agree that Jews as a class are oppressors. Like, it's just, you know, but I think that that's what the media and that's, it's related to what we're seeing. This this um, immediate backlash against uh, Jews and against Israel for what happened to Israel by Hamas and not seeing the complexity of this complex situation, um, you know, that is a dual narrative uh, and, uh, you know, the part of the article that really spoke to me that he, you, you started reading part of the paragraph above when he was talking about um, the hate crimes against Jews that have quintupled in the previous 10 years, especially under Trump's era, and then quintupled again from October 7th to December 7th of this year. Um, immediately, it wasn't like it started uh, when Israel, you know, started bombing Gaza like it already had happened like it immediately erupted with October 7th and he he references some other things too about the um uh the sort of allyship that just vanished overnight he talked about how the me too movement he says the same progressives who erupted in righteous rage during hashtag me too became somnambulant in the face of abundant evidence that Israeli women had been mutilated gang raped and murdered by Hamas like, I, I can't even tell you how how many weeks for me I have not slept thinking not just about what happened to the women, but about where are the voices crying out against what's happening. I know to go back to the Boston Globe article by Brooke Hauser, uh, she notes how you, let me quote two more sentences, Members of Beta Hava received a statement last Friday. This is the statement made by the congregation, uh, by the church for the, with which, you, which your congregation shares space with uh, at Bombex. And it says that you receive this, this, this memory, the, these memories, these thoughts, these uh, musings. Um, uh, last Friday night during an emotional Shabbat service that began with song and the lighting of candles, and ended with the mourner's Kaddish. Uh, earlier that day, Israeli defense forces mistakenly shot and killed three Israeli hostages at the service. Kozowski once again spoke about the war and the suffering 
and spoke about the suffering by not only, of course, uh, those who were killed and murdered by Hamas, but of the citizens of Gaza who have suffered so much as well in this war. And I want your reflections on this, that what has been experienced in the United States um, since the war began is not just a reflection of the war, but it's like there has been permission given to now express anti-Semitism um, because of what Israel's reaction has been and the military uh, force that has been used on Gaza. And leaving aside for a moment uh, that argument um, about the disproportionality of Israel's response, or not, but let's just accept for the moment that there has been an awful lot of destruction and killing uh, uh, that was not necessary, which is what I do believe. But leave that aside for a moment, because what I'd like your reaction to is whether or not you think I'm right that that criticism of Israel is now given permission to express anti-Semitism, and it has exposed this raw, nasty experience that is part of the United States, part of. Certainly. And just the fact that um, the massacre and the attack that happened by Hamas happened, uh, I think, and I'm not going to speak for every Jewish person or the entire Jewish community, but a little bit I will, that if the Jewish community is experiencing that as a form of anti-Semitism, that it's not just the Arab-Israeli conflict, um, that that the level of the brutality is taken right out of Hitler's playbook and worse, you know, this the fact that that wasn't already seen as part of anti-Semitism and yet it's used to unleash even greater anti-Semitism just further complicates this whole scenario. Uh, and, you know, there's a kind of like, oh, Jews are playing the Holocaust card. Why are you calling this a Holocaust or a mini Holocaust, as it, you know, has been called as well, or a pogrom. I mean, it certainly was a pogrom. And, um, yeah, so I think you're right about the unleashing of the anti-Semitism that was there. But, um, you know, the level of, of blame on, on, on the Jews and on Israel for having uh, brought this on you know, as if any as if any amount of occupation uh, or history uh, validates or justifies this level of sheer brutality uh, against citizens and children. It's just unbelievable. You still uh, there, Bill? <laughs> well, yeah, well, Buzz is here, too. And, and Buzz. Hi, Buzz. Yeah. Hi. Um, I, I wouldn't take back one word of what was said this morning. Um, with Brooke Hauser, everything you just said, Rabbi Ricky, everything that Bill just said. But I, I, the, for me, the elephant in the room is that there have been 400 such false bomb threats made in the past week that Oren Siegel, who's the vice president of the Center on Extremism from the Anti-Defamation League, he said it's, he, he believes, they believe, after a careful analysis, that it's either one person or a small group of individuals. And the FBI, has the FBI been in touch with you, Rabbi Ricky? Have have federal authorities been talking to you about the call that you received, the hoaxes that you received? Yeah, so, you know, we're one of many synagogues, obviously, right? And this is the second time, for whatever reason, we're pulled out of, you know, the internet or whatever the reason, or, the, or you know, 
because I, I don't necessarily there's no known cause about who was who was targeted um yeah I, we're we're in close contact with you know the um secure communities network and with uh northampton police and with our fbi representative um and other you know forms of you know security networks i'm so very concerned about whether or not the bomb threats at these swatting incidents it's a 540 percent increase over last year i'm I really want to make sure that law enforcement is doing what it has to do um, before this escalates, before it has a chance to gather inertia, that uh, yeah. there's deterrent effect in finding these people, locating these people, and letting everyone know that they've identified the suspects. Um, and I, I'm very concerned that that's not going on right now to the extent that it should be. Yeah, I, I don't, I don't, I mean, I don't, I don't have that concern that it's not be taken seriously from being taken seriously for every encounter that I've had with law enforcement around this. It's, it's taken very seriously. And, and it's not the only form of anti-Semitism. Like the Jewish community right now is, um, you know, is very concerned with actual physical safety, you know, of all sorts of forms. And, and by the way, there, there's an actual, um, monetary cost to anti-Semitism when you think of the level of um, just the, the actual cost every time there's a bomb threat to call out the bomb squad and all the interrupted you know services etc what that cost the city and the state level and the synagogue as well as the security that most Jewish institutions are having to add to their buildings in terms of security cameras and law enforcement and patrols so so there's there's that piece also. What about the cost to your psychological well-being and to the Jewish community from this ongo from these ongoing threats, uh, whether or not they're false threats? Right. Um, there's a huge emotional, psychological toll, so I don't want to minimize that. Um, my particular synagogue, as we've gotten beautiful, amazing coverage of, has, ha has been able to uh, have a different... Um, reaction because we have a relationship with an interfaith partner in the Florence Congregational Church that has really shown up and um, and also with Bombic Center for Arts and Equity that's been equally part of this uh, different um, allyship so that we're not fully alone most synagogues are but um, there's a huge emotional uh, toll and the more that um, groups from outside the Jewish community can contact their local Jewish communities and even just pick them out of the phone book and, and say, thinking about you, caring about you, um, that makes a big, that makes a big difference. We leave it there. Rabbi Ricky Kozowski of Beta Haba, thank you so very much. Thank you, Bill. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. At the last of four lengthy discussions about the future of solar development in Massachusetts, Shutesbury Planning Board member Michael DeShera talked about how small towns like his can't stand up to large developers in court when residents don't want a project in their community. Shutesbury is currently being sued by the solar development company Pure Sky Energy, which claims the town's bylaws are overly restrictive of solar energy development and therefore illegal. All it takes is a developer coming in with lots of money and lots of lawyers to say, we don't like your regulation or we're going to sue you because we want to do what we want to do. 
The five solar arrays that Pure Sky has proposed in Shutesbury would require clearing 360 acres of forest land and major electrical grid infrastructure upgrades. The arrays would be located on land owned by the W.D. Coles Company, which is also a plaintiff in the lawsuit against the town. After weeks of discussion, Amherst Town Councilors voted in favor of increasing the borrowing authorization for the Jones Library Project by $10 million, bringing the total authorized for the project to $46 million. Despite the increase, the town's commitment to the project will remain at $15.8 million. Greenfield City Council will be meeting tonight, and a vote is anticipated to fill the vacancy left by former Councilor Douglas Mayo after his resignation. Greenfield resident of 20 years, Laura Wondolowski, submitted a letter of interest to fill the vacancy through December 2025. Wondolowski has served on the board of the Connecticut River Conservancy, the United Way of Pioneer Valley, and other community organizations. Sunny day today with a light breeze from the northwest and a mild high of 42 to 46. Mostly clear tonight. Evening temperatures in the 30s. An overnight low of 22 to 28. Sunshine continues tomorrow with a high of 36 to 40. Sunny on Friday and mid-30s. I'm 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Brian Lapis, 101.5 WHMP. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. The Western Mass Business Show with local dynamo Tara Brewster. Saturdays at 11 and Sundays at 2. Only on WHMP. Brought to you by Greenfield Savings Bank with offices all throughout Hampshire and Franklin counties. Greenfieldsavings.com. The Western Mass Business Show with Tara Brewster. WHMP. Fitting in can really feel like it matters, especially when you're in high school. At the Hartsbrook High School in Hadley, fitting in doesn't mean conforming. It just means a sense of belonging. If you're into sports or into writing, if you're into arts or into math, if you're into nature or using technology as a tool, you can thrive at Hartsbrook High School. And you can thrive academically while being an integral part of a community intentionally focused on belonging. Hartsbrook students take their learning out of the classroom, into nature, into the community, learning through experience, experiments, research, and group projects. Hartsbrook prepares a person to look the world in the eye and take responsibility for themselves and the community. Is Hartsbrook right for your teenager? For parents and caregivers, there's a Discover Hartsbrook High School evening, February 6th. There are visiting days for students, January 23rd and February 6th. Register at hartsbrook.org. The Hartsbrook School, Waldorf Education, Early Childhood through High School on a 55-acre campus on Bay Road in Hadley. Have you heard about concierge medicine? It's a different way to do healthcare. A complete wellness package, which includes greater access to your doctor and more personalized care for an annual membership fee. Hi, I'm Dr. Kate Atkinson. I'm proud of the excellent care that Atkinson Family Practice has provided for 15 years and counting. In addition to our main practice, we're excited to begin offering concierge medicine. Is concierge right for you? Learn more at atkinsonfamilypractice.com slash concierge. Welcome back to Talk the Talk. This is our segment, Cool Films, with Florence-based Emmy Award-winning filmmaker Larry Hott, who is a member of the Academy and a voting member of the Academy, and so has been reviewing many, many films for his consideration as winners of that very prestigious award. 
Larry has been reviewing for your consideration with films that he has liked, occasionally one that perhaps he has not enjoyed quite as much. But today, I think you have some recommendations for us, Larry, do you? I have a very strange and wondrous film to recommend you really? today. And it does relate to what we've just been talking about. Uh, we were talking about anti-Semitism, um, colonialism, oppression. Well, this film is called The Mission. And we just spent 30 yeah. seconds, Larry Hot. You live near the Bombics. Um, how concerned is the neighborhood about these bomb threats? Uh, I don't think anybody in the neighborhood has said anything that they think it's a threat to them personally. Um, and I think most people think of this as, as more of a, I'd say, a sign of the times, uh, something that makes us worry about the state of the society, uh, as opposed to the threats being actually real. Um, that's why I mentioned the connection with this, this film called The Mission, which was, uh, was paid for by the National Geographic Society in a very odd way because part of the film actually blames the National Geographic Society for the problems they're talking about. What is the film? The film's called The Mission, and it's something you might have heard about it. a few years ago, in 2018. A young missionary, 26-year-old missionary named John Chow, he was an evangelical Christian, brought up in a parochial school, went to Oral Roberts University, and he has this idea that he wants to be an adventurer like Robinson Crusoe and go out to find the last uncivilized, in quotes, people in the world. And he finds this island off of India called the Ottoman Islands and the North Sentinelese people there. The last time there was any contact with them, they killed the people who had to contact them. But he's going to go there and convert them to Christianity. What's the connection with what we were just talking about? Well go back in time to the Crusades, the, the Puritans, the conversion, the, mission, the missions across the United States, um, the attempts to convert anybody who was not Christian to Christianity. Of course, uh, the Muslims also took over most of Europe, trying to do the same things. Um, Jews, as you probably know, for the most part, have the opposite mentality. In fact, if you want to convert to Judaism, the old rule is you have to ask three times before somebody <laughs> will take you seriously. Just guy John Chow, that you find out at the beginning of the film, the classic storytelling technique. You tell, tell people what happened, and then you go back in time and tell you how you got there. John Chow goes onto this island and immediately gets killed. <laughs> he gets shot with arrows by these people who the last time they were contacted was, was quite a while ago, started dying off from disease, and they don't want anything to do with any outsider. So where does he come Tell us from? again where this island is, Larry. It's off the coast of India. Uh, it is heavily protected. The Indian government knows that these are the last uncontacted people in the world. I think that's, that's, that's near where David Rockefeller met his... Uh, uh, no, he was, in, he was in South America, in, in, in Amazon, I'm pretty sure. No? It was nope. oh, Papua New Guinea, maybe? Yeah, I think uh, it was Papua New Guinea. Oh, maybe, okay. Um, it's not a good idea to go into these, into these places, particularly trying to convert people. But let's hear a clip. You'll get a sense of how powerful this film is. John <coughs> paid some pirates to go to an island to talk to people about Jesus when he knew... They had no business doing that. John's parents brought him up to be Christian. He was just like full of light. 
I had a little bit of a crush on him. You couldn't have asked for a better young man. He reminds me of who I wanted to serve with. He told me his plan was to go live in the middle of the jungle. It didn't sound that bad. I thought that John would get accepted. People whose language no one speaks, whose culture no one knows. There's a fine line between faith and madness. Fine line between faith and madness. I think he was mad right from the beginning. One of the great things that this film does is it has other missionaries who spent 20, 30 years trying to do what John Chow did and concluding that it was a huge mistake that all they did was harm to these people. And then they are juxtaposed with the people at Oral Roberts who cultivated, who, who, who were like uh, gurus, like Svengali's, to this boy John Chow, to basically turn him into this zealot, zealot for Christ. The story behind the story is that his father, a Chinese immigrant to America, becomes a psychiatrist, and he keeps a diary about his life and what he wants for his son. And John Chow, the young kid, keeps a diary. And the filmmakers have these diaries and then they illustrate them with fantastic animation. Sometimes animation doesn't work in films. It's kind of cartoonish. This is beautifully done animation, along with that classic National Geographic footage. And the key moment in the film for me is when they go back and they look at the old National Geographic magazines and how they portrayed the missionaries, how they celebrated them, and how they created this idea that you could go in and change people's lives and that they were not, they were all going to die in hell if they could, did not come to Christ. And this idea drives missionaries and has for you know, two, almost 2,000 years. Uh, can you label it evil when it destroys a society? Perhaps, and this is a very controversial thing to say. So what is this film about? It's about obsession, religious zeal, youthful dreams of adventure. But this guy, in a more um, mythic way, is an Icarus character. He flies too close to the sun the sun being his desire to have adventure for Christ. And then he's killed almost immediately. And all the warning signs were there. I want to say one other thing about his, his backstory. He's in parochial school, and he has a club with his friends. And it, it is the, something like the Commitment Club. And they ask one of his friends, present day, what was the commitment? And he said, well, our commitment was not to look at porn. And then the interviewer looks, you know, says, well, and he says, well, of course, that's all we did. <laughs> so I think the hypocrisy there is, is what the film turns on, what the uh, evangelical Christian movement says that they want to have happen, and then what actually happens. Wow. You recommend this film. This is a brilliant film. It carries you. It has a great narrative. Even though you know he dies in the end, how did it happen? You know, how did he, he trains for it. He trains for it for years. He, he becomes a firefighter in the, in the wilderness. He becomes a mountain climber and he's an influencer. Uh, he posts everything. So of course the filmmakers have all of his posts and all the videos he's made over his short life. But he is a, he is a kid, he is, uh, is he a, let's see, is he a millennial? Uh, Gen Z, I'm not sure which one he is. That's Gen Z, I guess. What, tell me this, Larry, why? Did he allow or did he request that there be a uh, videographer there 
to to. Well, the videographer's not there when he get when he gets killed. No, but no, he, no. He, he's carrying his own camera. There's oh, no footage is. of him of being killed, but everything up to that point, he hires pirates to take him out to this island. It's all illegal what he's doing, but the the missionary groups behind him know he's doing this, and they do not talk him out of it. They encourage him to do it. So you have to wonder. You know, because there's this group of, of unsaved persons that yes. they're going to save? One of the last tribes that has had no contact, no real contact. There's history of other missionaries having gone there over the last couple of hundred years and failed. One of them picked up a family on his boat. They immediately got sick from the diseases that was carried on the boat and died. And this was celebrated, or at least they tried, right? But that's the... the it's apparently this tribe knows about what's happened to them in the past, and they don't want anything to do with white people. The name of this film and when it's, it, where it's available? It's called The Mission. It's made by National Geographic. It's on the National Geographic, Geographic Channel, and you can find it on other services by paying three ninety nine. More cool films with Larry Hott right after this. More Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg coming up right here on WHMP. I'm Lisa Riley. Join me every Saturday at 9.30 a.m. here on WHMP as we share stories that shine a light on justice-involved individuals or just underdogs in the game of life, their struggles, their successes, and the many resources and opportunities available for those who are hustling to carve a new path and prove that failure isn't final. So unlock your future, rewrite your story. This is The Hustler Files. Maybe you still have your copy of a favorite long-ago book, like I do, about Mickey Mantle, signed by my Uncle Bill, Hanukkah, 1958. A book can make a lasting impression. Something Someday is the new picture book by the presidential inaugural poet Amanda Gorman. Get it at Broadside Bookshop. For middle grade and elementary readers, Percy Jackson and the Olympians, The Chalice of the Gods. Order any book on the Broadside website. Have it delivered anywhere or pick it up at the store, then browse a bit. Broadside, Northampton's independent bookshop. Hi, this is Jane Wolf, Senior Vice President of Residential Lending at Greenfield Cooperative Bank. I'd like to wish you and your family a wonderful holiday season and a prosperous new year. Hi, this is Missy Tatro, Assistant Vice President and Senior Mortgage Originator at Greenfield Cooperative Bank. I'd like to wish everyone a safe and happy holiday season. Hi, this is Julie and Ashley, wishing everyone a cheerful, stress-free holiday season and a delightful new year. Hi, I'm Brendan O'Connor. I'm Ethan McCandless. And I am Luke Parsons. From the Credit Department at Greenfield Cooperative Bank, happy holidays. Hi, this is Teresa from the 63 Federal Street Office of Greenfield Cooperative Bank. I would like to wish all of our customers and their families a Christmas that's merry and bright and a happy new year filled with love, health, and happiness. Hi, I'm Dawn. And I'm Erica from the Florence Branch of Northampton Cooperative Bank. We, we would, would like, like to extend our best wishes to our customers, families, and friends for a happy holiday season and a happy new year. Cheers. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. We continue with Florence-based Emmy Award-winning filmmaker Larry Hutt. This is Cool Films, and you have another recommendation for us? Well, I try to put these films together. There's some connection between them. And these so are, again, films These films are, are, are eligible for, uh, be, to be nominated for the Academy Award. This is a short documentary called Deciding Vote. I learned about it because The New Yorker sent me an email with a list of the films that they had produced that were up for nominations. 
So I saw this title, Deciding Vote, and I thought that looks interesting. And this film goes very, very well with the mission in that it is about not evangelical zeal, but moral decisions. And it's more, it's actually much more relevant to what's going on this in is Congress. Kind of, this is what we're doing. It's, it's like wine pairing on these yeah. films, these yes. films, right? Yes, yeah, so there, there, there are notes. It has an articulate bouquet. <laughs> <laughs> it's a Woody Allen line. So this is a New Yorker film about the New York Assemblyman George Michaels. And he's a liberal Jewish guy from a mostly Catholic Auburn, New York. He's in the Assembly of New York in 1970. Uh, this 20-minute film packs enormous amount of power and motion into this very short period. Let's just hear a clip from Deciding Vote. Over the last two weeks, the New York Assembly spent more than 13 hours debating the bill which would make abortion legal for any woman, for any reason, up to the 24th week of pregnancy. Advocates and enemies of the bill brought tremendous pressures to bear on legislators on the emotional issue. We're not going to stick any longer. You are murdering us. The drama was summed up late yesterday when one man's vote made the difference. Mr. Speaker, I had hoped that this would never come to pass. I fully appreciate that this is the termination of my political career, but what's the use of getting elected or re-elected if you don't stand for something? That speech is in 1970. This is three years before Roe v. Wade made abortion legal nationwide. New York State is about to vote on a contentious pro-abortion bill, and the vote in the assembly is tied, and Michaels votes against it, votes against abortion. But what happens next is his son comes to him, and the the way it works in the assembly, it's not done. You, You can still open it up. His son comes to him and says, Dad, this is wrong. And he didn't want to vote against it because it was going to end his political career because he is in a mostly Catholic district and they are opposed to abortion. So he's, he didn't know that it would be his would be the deciding vote, which is the name of the film. So he, he makes a motion to change his vote and then he makes that speech, which you just heard a clip from, where she says, I know this will end my career. So here he by, did, by voting by for voting a bill. for and now abortion became legal in New York three years before Roe versus Wade. I remember people walking with the signs. My mother was an activist. She uh, every day would come home from a, a march okay, with all these buttons that I would wear them to high school, and everybody else was wearing these buttons to make you know abortion free and legal in New York. Um, but people at the time thought it was inevitable that the bill would be defeated, and then he sacrifices his career. And then he says so. Okay, so why does this resonate today? Because he took an ethical position. He was willing to lose his seat rather than bow to pressure from his constituents. Everybody is saying this about the Republicans in Congress. They only are playing to their MAGA base. So what made him do it? Well, his son, who's interviewed in the film, who's a rabbi, by the way, uh, he begs him to do it after searching his soul, and he decides to do the right thing. So... Do we wish this would happen in Congress more often? Well, I do. Right? How would Congress look? Did you, I think you might have seen the reports today that this is um, one of the worst Congresses in history in terms of passing legislation. Right? Um, they got nothing done. It's a do-nothing do Congress. Why? Because they're pandering 
to their to their base. So the, the reason that this film is so timely is because here's an example of a person said, I will lose my my position and I'm proud to do it. And in fact he gets primaried. The Republic the Democratic Party won't run him again because they don't want to lose a seat. Go ahead, Bill. And he does lose. Is that he, what you're saying? Well, he he's not he allowed to in, run again. He loses in the primary. He, he does. They won't. They won't let. They won't. They, yeah, they primary. I mean, they put somebody up against them and intentionally to get to get him out. Where's this film available? And so where? this is actually on the New Yorker website, um, and I had no trouble finding it. In fact, the clip you just heard is actually the opening of the film because they didn't have a trailer available. And the reason you find it so powerful? I, well, not only is it short, which is a nice. Um, short how long? It's it's uh, twenty minutes, which is a short short documentary. Yeah, yeah it's, it has to be under under thirty nine to be short, but it is making the the case for taking a moral stand in Congress and not pandering to your base. Uh, we don't have enough of that. Larry Hot, we thank you so much for your reviews. This has been Cool Films with Larry Hot. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg on WHMP. Forbes Library Outreach Delivery Service caters to residents of any age who are homebound due to short or long-term disability in Northampton, Florence, and Leeds. A volunteer will deliver your specific requests or select materials for you based on your interests. We offer books, magazines, CDs, DVDs, and puzzles. Call 413-587-1019 or sign up at ForbesLibrary.org outreach. What if there were a way to go into cancer surgery or treatment feeling more comfortable and optimistic? Recorded meditations can help. Doctors have said that it makes their job simpler. Nurses tell us their patients may go home sooner and need less pain medication. Cancer Connection creates custom meditations for people affected by cancer, and you don't even have to come in. Go to cancer-connection.org to learn more or donate today. Cancer Connection relies on local donations to make its services free of charge. WHMP Northampton and WRSI HD2 Turner's Falls. WHMP.com, a Northampton radio group station. It's 10 o'clock. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg on WHMP. And welcome to Talk the Talk. I am Buzz Eisenberg. And I'm Bill Newman. And we will be speaking in just a few moments with Tim and Wallace, who's the national coordinator of the Warheads to Windmills Coalition, and Vicki Elson, who is the creative director of NuclearBand.us. But first, Buzz, you have some thoughts about what happened yesterday in Colorado. I have so many thoughts. My head is swimming. The Colorado Supreme Court uh, disqualified Donald Trump from holding the office of president. Or for, for running. And from running for the office of president. That was based on a constitutional provision that uh, came from uh, Reconstruction in the wake of the Civil War, the 14th Amendment, Section 3, which says it disqualifies those uh, from holding off federal office who have taken an oath um, from holding office ever again because of the cessation uh, of the Confederacy from the Union. Um, because of un being involved in insurrection. And an insurrection. And uh, so there was a finding by a district court judge that, in fact, he had uh, participated in an insurrection. However, because the word president wasn't prominent in that uh, 
in that constitutional provision, uh, she ruled that uh, he would not be disqualified. The Colorado Supreme Court disagreed four to three and said that he uh, will be off the ballot. I think that it's exclusively, unless the Supreme Court once again goes off the rails and does what it ought not to do because it lacks the jurisdiction to do it, it ought to be a state Supreme Court decision that just holds. We have a number of other states like Michigan that are entertaining a similar disqualification. We have some states that have disqualified people based on insurrection, two of them I understand, Um, and other states that have said that it's something the Supreme Court should rule on. We're going to have to hold our breath and see how many ballots uh, Donald Trump is not appearing on. My hope is many. You're not concerned that a ruling like this, if it were to be upheld, could allow states uh, that are controlled by uh, right-wing Republican jurists would keep Democratic nominees, particularly in swing states, off the ballot? I am concerned about that. I guess the real question, Bill, is should there be a finding, a literal finding, that someone had participated in insurrection? Usually we would interpret that as being a criminal Finding, And as you know, even Jack Smith uh, chose not to charge insurrection in the many counts against Donald Trump. But here we have a congressional committee after due deliberation made a report that found that he had participated in insurrection. If you can't trust Congress to make such a finding, are duly elected representatives in a representative democracy who actually found, um, by the way, even though it was tilted five to two in favor of Democrats. Nevertheless, there were Republicans. It was a uh, uh, unanimous decision that he had participated in a an insurrection by Congress. So my hope, Bill, is that those, uh, those concerns that you have about uh, right-leaning judges making similar findings, hopefully at least they'll have something more than... Uh, than their own whims to rely on. Well, something else to point out here. It's a four to three decision in Colorado. It's not an overwhelming decision by the Colorado Supreme Court. So that makes it vulnerable. And the words of the 14th Amendment make the decision vulnerable because what the district court judge in Colorado originally found that was not accepted by the Colorado State Supreme Court is that the word president does not appear in this sentence of the 14th Amendment that I'm going to read to you. Here's what, here's what it says. No person shall be a senator or a representative in Congress or elector of president and vice president or hold any office, civil or military, under the United States who has previously taken an oath as a member of Congress or as an officer of the United States or as a member of any state legislature or as an executive or judicial officer of any state to support the Constitution of the United States and has engaged in insurrection or rebellion against the same. Note the word in the office that is not mentioned. President. President is an office. It says, or hold any office. President is, in fact, an officer of the United States. I don't know how to not call the president an officer of the United States. Because the problem, the constitutional problem and the statutory or constitutional interpretation problem is that when the statute at issue uh, represents uh, specifically states and designates certain offices, senator, representative, elector, vice president, president, 
elector of president or vice president, uh, and but doesn't mention the president, there is going to be an argument, and this Supreme Court will grab it, saying, if they had meant to eliminate the president, they would have said it. They didn't. They clearly eliminated all sorts of other offices. Um, and and one other thing, there is this theory. There is this. Uh, uh, con- there is both a constitutional and statutory interpretation principle that like words are interpreted like when you have a general term at the end. So when it says, for example, senator, representative, elector, or president, uh, or other federal offices, it's that kind of office. And if they had meant president, they would have said the Supreme Court is an easy way to say president is not included in this provision. You may well be right and that, that the Supreme Court does do that because that's the kind of thing this Supreme Court does and that's the kind of uh, statutory interpretation it engages in. But nevertheless, I'm sure that any, any proper reading of this constitutional amendment, hey, assume the president really said, let's engage in an insurrection. I want the military to attack all Democrats. I can't imagine that And that, anybody, and that may be coming. And I can't imagine that any rational person would ever say, oh, that wasn't interpreted, uh, that wasn't uh, uh, foreseen by the framers of this uh, 14th Amendment uh, at the time. Obviously, he's an insurrectionist and he shouldn't run for president. Well, he clearly shouldn't run for president. That was Judge Eisenberg speaking. (laughs) Shouldn't run for president. The question is, should he be prevented from running for president, yes. Should voters, and this is how the court was going to frame it, should voters be prevented from voting him, voting for him for president? Yes, he's an insurrectionist. Okay, we'll give you the last word on that. <laughs> Buzz, thank you so much. Um, really appreciate. It. We obviously this is an issue that we will be following very closely in the days and weeks to come. Let's turn to Tim and Wallace, who is the national coordinator of the Warheads to Windmills Coalition and to Vicki Elson, who is the creative director of NuclearBand.us. They are with us today because Timon has a new book. Uh, The book launch was just last Friday, I believe, here in Northampton. The title of the book, Warheads to Windmills, Preventing Climate Catastrophe and Nuclear War. It is, I think, an indispensable book uh, for activists who want to understand and have available at their fingertips the facts and the uh, analysis that you need to really talk about climate change, climate catastrophe, and nuclear war. Uh, Tim and Wallace, thank you so much for this book, and thank you for being with us today. Why this book at this time? Well, thanks for having us, uh, Bill. Um, as you as you may remember, we were on the, on your show a f- several years ago now. I think it was 2019. We did an earlier edition of this uh, as a as a sort of report. This was the disarming the nuclear argument book, or no? Not this really. was the this was wars. Oh, to this windmills was prevent, right, uh, It right, was right. called wars to windmills. How to, how to pay for a green new deal? Right, right, right. And it right. was during the time that um, during the just before the 2020 election when the green new deal was a big thing and right. And, so it was getting out of date, and I thought we could just sort of update a few numbers and be done with it, but it took a lot more work than that, as you can see. And it's now a whole paperback, and it's quite detailed and almost a 1,000 footnotes. So we, we put a lot more into it than we did. Right. I mean, I mean, if you want to be able to engage in a discussion on either nuclear war, the potential for nuclear war, uh, and climate catastrophe, 
this book is something you want to have at your fingertips. Uh, and I just mentioned uh, uh, the previous book, uh, dis- uh, uh, Timmons' previous book, Disarming the Nuclear Argument, the Truth About Nuclear Weapons. Uh, we should note that that book contributed to the negotiations for the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons, for which the international campaign to abolish nuclear weapons won the Nobel Prize in 2017. 2017. Timmons Wallace, again, back to my question. This book at this time, Warheads to Windmills, Preventing Climate Catastrophe and Nuclear War, what I understand, you said, well, let's update it, and it became a much bigger project and a much bigger book. That said, why now? Well, as you know, we're, we're in, a, in a very dangerous, difficult period, um, not just with the election coming up, but um, you know, with the, the Ukraine war has set back the climate agenda enormously, as well as raised the specter of nuclear war uh, for the first time for many people. I mean, it's been there uh, lurking, as, as you know, in my previous book, um, you know, we talked about all the dangers that have been with us ever since 1945, and people have put it out of their minds. But that threat is now much more uh, front and center for a lot of people, and the dangers are very, very real. And um, so, uh, you know, we've, we've um, launched this coalition, bringing together climate groups and nuclear abolition groups to see how if we, can, if we can work more closely together on these twin existential threats to humanity. Okay, that's a phrase that we hear a lot, an existential threat. What do you mean by that? Well, um, in the introduction, uh, we talk about all the kinds of threats. I mean, obviously, if you live in Gaza right now, you're facing an existential th- uh, a threat to your very existence with bombs dropping on your head. Uh, and many, many people are facing other kinds of uh, very immediate threats um, to, their, to their life. You know, it's a, it's a life and death emergency. And we're, we're calling these uh, nuclear, nuclear war and climate catastrophe existential threats because they threaten everything that we that we hold dear and that we that we know I mean in terms of we don't know what the what the um, final impact will be of any either of these but we know that they threaten everything that we that we know today I mean climate would take a long time you know decades but you know we could see whole civilizations underwater we could see the collapse of food supplies and you know all kinds of huge major catastrophes and of course the nuclear war would happen very very quickly potentially and cause even more damage to every everything so that's the that's how we're framing it well i have a question for both of our guests here tim and wallace whose new book is warheads to windmills preventing climate catastrophe and nuclear war and uh, vicky elson we should note they are how did Monty say it? The, cute, the cutest couple, they are married, and they are, what, the cutest couple in the anti-nuclear movement, something like that? <laughs> well, we, we love that. <laughs> yeah, I love that. That's terrific. Uh, I would like to ask you both this question, uh, and it really comes from uh, the beginning pages of uh, Tim and Tim's new, new, new book, Warheads to Windmills, in which I think there's this quite profound statement. Um, it, it it is that we are all in this together. And what I would appreciate understanding is how it is that persons who are, uh, by their position, uh, say, 
inclined to promote fossil fuels uh, or to promote the expansion of nuclear weapons because they have a monetary uh, investment in that. They're going to make more money. The corporations will make more money. But you can't escape climate catastrophe. No matter how rich you are, no matter how much you own, uh, if there is climate catastrophe in your in your neighborhood, in your state, you are going to suffer enormously, no matter how rich you are. And if there is a nuclear exchange, your life is going to be destroyed, no matter how rich you are. We are, in fact, in many ways, regardless of class or race or religion, we are all in this together. Given that, how is it that we are so far away from solving and avoiding uh, nuclear catastrophe and climate catastrophe. Let me start with you, Vicki Elson. Well, I wrote a song about this, uh, about living in a bunker. Uh, the chorus goes, um, rich people on a dead planet, what were we thinking? God damn it. <laughs> and, you know, that is exactly the question. I, I think that um, people don't want to think about it. Uh, people don't feel empowered to do anything about it, and that's what the book is for. So I, I think if people were able to focus on it without shutting down completely, you know, they would uh, be more able to take action on their own behalf. So you think it's a matter of uh, fatalism? Whatever is going to happen is going to happen, and we don't have, we're not empowered, we don't have any authority, we don't have any agency here? Well, that's where I was at before I met Tim. And he took me to the UN, and I witnessed the treaty on the prohibition. That was your first date. Let's go to the UN. Fourth date. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah. I was making that up. Yeah. Yeah. No, so much better than dinner in a movie. I tell you, I had, had to marry the guy. But um, you know, I, I witnessed the the treaty on the prohibition of nuclear weapons being agreed by 122 countries at the UN, and and then I I, I realized, oh well, my fatalism was misplaced. You know, there is hope. We can work together. We can do this. And I've been pretty excited ever since then and a lot more cheerful to feel empowered that, that there are things that we can do. And we're talking about a fossil fuel treaty as well that, that some countries are starting to put together. And, and it really um, gained some traction at the COP28. So uh, that's very exciting to me. There is uh, hope. There are things that we can do. Uh, but we really need to do them very fast and very intensely. So uh, Tim and Wallace or Vicki Olson. Uh, I understand that there is a Massachusetts commission that's being proposed, there's legislation that's being proposed to the Massachusetts legislature to deal with the twin horrors of climate change and nuclear weapons. Could you tell us about that, Timon? Yes, uh, we have a bill in the State House, um, co-sponsored by uh, Lindsay Sabadosa, Representative Sabadosa from Northampton in the House, and by uh, Senator Joe Comerford, in the, also from Northampton, in the Senate, and um, we have a briefing coming up for members of the State House in January. Uh, they're both in committees. Um, as you probably know, the State House, um, I mean, Massachusetts is a great state, but the State House is a very slowly grinding institution, <laughs> and uh, this is now our sixth year of putting this in. Um, we, t we were told the average for any bill is, is seven years to get passed. So um, we're hoping that it will be, will be passed soon. It's, it's probably a good idea for all of us to write our legislators and tell them Absolutely. we're in favor of this. Yes, thank you. We'll continue our conversation with Tim and Wallace, National Coordinator of the Warheads to Windmills Coalition, and Vicki Elson, Creative Director 
of nuclearban.us right after this. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. Find local news and local talk for the Valley. Which says we need to appeal to the wealthy white people of our region because the marginalized people do not have money. Which is true, but as we know, that's what happens when you have centuries of policies that are oppressive, that are racist. Where the heart of the Pioneer Valley lives. 1015 and 1400 WHMP. News, information, and the arts. What's cooking at River Valley Co-op? Here's avid eater, grocery shopper, and co-op member, Bill Newman. Sweeten up your holiday parties with gingerbread cookies, chocolate hazelnut seashells, vanilla Hanukkah cookies, and mini Dresden Stolen. It's all at the co-op. Sweet treats, the holiday roast, fresh seafood, beer and wine, and lots and lots and lots of local farm fruits and vegetables. Do a little gift shopping, too. River Valley Co-op, wild about local. Everyone is welcome. Happy other holidays at Winesick Nursery. But behind the fresh-cut Christmas trees, the wreaths, the roping, and the wooden reindeer, beyond the retail store filled with gifts, just past the poinsettias, indoor plants, pottery, or planters and bird feeders, on the other side of the ornaments, garden gifts, and gifts cards, that's where you'll find the Winesick family wishing you and your family a healthy and happy holiday season. Thank you for growing with us on Route 9 in Hadley and at winesicknursery.com. Happy holidays from the Winesick family to yours. When you're going through a tough time and need to talk with a mental health care provider as soon as possible, walk into ServiceNet's clinic at 50 Pleasant Street in downtown Northampton any Wednesday between 10 and 2. We'll see you right away. Or call ServiceNet anytime to make an appointment. Talk therapy, medication management, and other specialized treatments. ServiceNet's team works together to provide the care you need all in one place. Walk in Wednesdays 10 to 2 or call anytime. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. We continue our conversation with Tim and Wallace and Vicki Elson. Uh, Tim and Wallace's new book is Warheads to Windmills, Preventing Climate Catastrophe and Nuclear, and Nuclear War. It is available at your local independent bookstore and will be a book that if you give to your activists and involved friends will be appreciated for the next year. And for many years to come, it is a indispensable, indispensable book for those who are involved in activism, in opposing climate catastrophe, and in trying to work towards the abolition of nuclear weapons and the abolition of the existential threat of nuclear war. In your book, Tim, and you say this, nothing we've ever faced in all of human history is as important as what we do now. We urgently need to convert to a fossil-free economy. We need to abolish every nuclear weapon from the face of the earth forever. And then you say this. We can do this. So let's start with you, and then we'll go to Vicki. How can we do this? Well, first of all, we're not alone. So we're working with other countries, um, uh, movements in other countries, and the, and the governments of other countries who are on board with this with both the fossil fuel and the nuclear abolition. And they are um, beginning, I mean, it's just, it's just starting, but they're putting pressure on the companies that make these weapons and, and pull the fossil fuels out of the ground. So, for instance, Ireland has a law 
which makes it illegal to have anything to do with nuclear weapons, including financing them, and it's punishable up to life in prison in Ireland, which is pretty strong for a, for a, a law like this. And um, we want to see more countries doing this. There's 69 countries that have ratified the treaty so far, and Ireland's the first one to have a law like this. And the treaty says what? The treaty says it's illegal to, it's prohibited to design, develop, manufacture, maintain, process, move nuclear weapons, or assist in any of that. Let me ask you this question, because it's the same question I remember that I asked you uh, after your first book that you had you on the show to talk about, which was Disarming the Nuclear Argument, The Truth About Nuclear Weapons. And I asked you, and I asked you again, the countries that have ratified the treaty, and there are many more than when we first spoke, are not countries that have nuclear weapons. And the countries that have nuclear weapons have not ratified, not one of them. Right. How are you going to get, how do we get from here to there? Well, there, there's a whole chapter in the book about this. And, uh, and, and so I'm asking you. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, it looks at, it, you know, we look at the specific countries that are on, on target for coming on board with the treaty. And that includes a lot of countries in Europe and NATO members, for instance. It includes Australia. The, the, the pr- current prime minister of Australia has signed the pledge to join the treaty. The governments of Germany, Spain, uh, you know, they have huge majorities in their parliaments as well as in public opinion saying sign this treaty. So sooner or later, that's going to happen. And that's going to put more and more pressure on the U.S. Okay, I don't mean to be a downer here, but uh, Vladimir Putin isn't going to have the same kind of uh, pressure brought on him by his public. How do you get and if And, if, okay, and, so and, that's and if, the, if the opponents of the United States aren't even remotely interested in this, Neither will the United States and the Western, other Western countries that have, have, have nuclear weapons, not to mention Israel, not to mention uh, Pakistan and India. But uh, I'm, I'm not trying to be negative here, but it, yeah, it seems no, it's, to me... It's, that's it's everybody's question. Yeah, yeah. And that's another chapter in the book, looking at specifically Russia um, and China, but especially Russia. I mean, the U.S. and Russia have, you know, between them 95% of all nuclear weapons at the moment. And you're absolutely right. You know, I mean, um, the 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 conflict in Ukraine has made this worse uh, than it was before, and it's going to take a lot more than just public opinion to 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 get Russia on board. But there are there are pathways to do that, and you know, I don't have a magic ball, but I mean, I've put in the book some of the possible ways which w- where we could work to get the situation in Europe, in particular with NATO and the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe and these other institutions to make it possible for Russia to join this treaty. And how about the North Koreas? I mean, North the Korea, Iran. Yeah, um, well, North Korea is a very interesting one because I think we might have mentioned this as well on our program before, that North Korea was the only nuclear weapons country that actually voted to have these negotiations for the treaty. And that was before Trump got in and before you know the fire and fury and all the rest of it. But, you know, a country like North Korea uh, has nuclear weapons because they are convinced, because we tell them that these are great, you know, forms of deterrence and protect us from, from countries like them. And they think, well, that's, that's going to be our protection from the U.S. Um, it's, not, it's not the U.S. that was bombed to smithereens, you know, by North Korea. It was the other way around. And they know that and they still live with that. And I think North Korea is actually one of the countries that will come on board sooner than many of the others 
if the U.S. starts to move its position. So in other words, they have them to protect themselves from us. Sure, as all, as all, all countries are, are doing. And you but these are important questions. I mean, you know, I don't, have the, I don't have the answers in the book, but I certainly address them, and I have lots of references, and, you know, people can follow up and look at and decide for themselves what's, what might be a realistic pathway. But we have to do this. I mean, it's either, it's either us or, you know, the end of the world. So here's something else we talked about some years ago yeah. and is still very present, and it is that there's an argument. It says, look... There were the United States bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And since then, no one has used a nuclear weapon. So imperfect as it may be, hasn't deterrence worked? You do address this in the book, and I would appreciate if you'd spend a minute with us on that. Sure. Um, how many minutes have we got? <laughs> one minute. Okay. Well, I mean, it's, um, you know, it's an ad hoc ergo propter hoc argument to say that nuclear weapons have kept the peace for the last 75 years, because we don't know. I mean, a lot of evidence uh, from the archives of the former Soviet Union, for instance, make it clear that there was never any intention of the Soviet Union to attack and invade Western Europe during the Cold War, and therefore you can't really make the argument that nuclear weapons was preventing them from doing that. But aside from that, the, the reality is that the, even if we accept that nuclear deterrence worked, the problem is, can it work forever? You know, I mean, we, we're, we've got weapons aimed at each other that will wipe out humanity. And how long do you think that can go on without something going wrong? We know that there's been at least 13 times that we've come close to nuclear war, including the Cuban Missile Crisis, but 12 other times that most people don't know about. And so, you know, the, the risks are there and they're growing every day. And, and, you know, it might hold, but it might not. And that's the risk. Yeah, it has to work perfectly all the time, every time, forever, in order for deterrence to... I mean, so it maybe maybe even if it is working all these years, we cannot continue to count on our excellent good luck continuing to hold. Vicki Elson is the creative director of NuclearBan.us. Tim and Wallace is the national coordinator of the Warheads to Windmills Coalition. His new book, Warheads to Windmills, Preventing Climate Catastrophe and Nuclear War, available at your local independent bookstore. Thank you both so much for being with us. Thank you both. We are in your debt for all your work. Thank you so much. <laughs> this is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. At the last of four lengthy discussions about the future of solar development in Massachusetts, Shrewsbury Planning Board member Michael Deshera talked about how small towns like his can't stand up to large developers in court when residents don't want a project in their community. Shrewsbury is currently being sued by the solar development company Pure Sky Energy, which claims the town's bylaws are overly restrictive of solar energy development and therefore illegal. All it takes is a developer coming in with lots of money and lots of lawyers to say, we don't like your regulation or we're going to sue you because... We want to do what we want to do. The five solar arrays that Pure Sky has proposed in Shootsbury would require clearing 360 acres of forest land and major electrical grid infrastructure upgrades. The arrays would be located on land owned by the W.D. Coles Company, which is also a plaintiff in the lawsuit against the town. After weeks of discussion, Amherst Town Councilors voted in favor of increasing the borrowing authorization for the Jones Library Project by $10 million, bringing the total authorized for the project to $46 million. Despite the increase, the town's commitment to the project will remain at $15.8 million. 
Greenfield City Council will be meeting tonight, and a vote is anticipated to fill the vacancy left by former Councillor Douglas Mayo after his resignation. Greenfield resident of 20 years, Laura Wondolowski, submitted a letter of interest to fill the vacancy through December 2025. Wondolowski has served on the board of the Connecticut River Conservancy, the United Way of Pioneer Valley, and other community organizations. Sunny day today with a light breeze from the northwest and a mild high of 42 to 46. Mostly clear tonight. Evening temperatures in the 30s. An overnight low of 22 to 28. Sunshine continues tomorrow with a high of 36 to 40. Sunny on Friday and mid-30s. I'm 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Brian Lapis, 101.5 WHMP. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. High school is a time of discovery, of exploring the world and shaping your future. What happens in high school has a deep and lasting effect. At the Hartsbrook High School, that means discovering more than the right answers to test questions. Textbooks give way to learning through experience, experiments, research, and group projects. Hartsbrook students take their science studies into the woods and social studies into the community, working for food justice and applying their own solutions to issues such as climate change or food insecurity. They connect with students worldwide with the Model UN and participate in exchange, traveling to and hosting students from countries around the world. They cultivate an unwavering sense that they can take action in the world and can handle adversity. Is Hartsbrook the right school for your teenager? For parents and caregivers, there's a Discover Hartsbrook High School evening February 6th. There are visiting days for students January 23rd and February 6th. Register at Hartsbrook.org. The Hartsbrook School, Waldorf Education, Early Childhood through High School on a 55-acre campus on Bay Road in Hadley. When I was a kid, a bowl of cereal seemed incomplete unless it was topped with sliced bananas. And we knew where our bananas came from. They came from Chiquita. Our pineapples came from Dole. And our oranges came from Sunkist. We didn't think much about it, but we do now. We want food that hasn't spent a lot of time on a truck or in a processing plant. Around here, it's hard to miss the Local Hero label. Local Hero makes it quick and easy to identify food raised right here in Western Mass. Local Hero is part of CESA, Community Involved in Sustaining Agriculture. And Local Hero is just one of the things that CESA does to help Western Mass farms thrive. CESA helps build a strong local food system, working with farmers, stores, restaurants, so all of us have fresh Fresh local food choices. Look for the bright yellow Local Hero label and think about becoming a CESA supporter. Go to buylocalfood.org, find out what CESA does and why it's worth supporting, and bon appetit. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. And welcome back to the show. I am so pleased with our next guest because our next guest is the president of Greenfield Community College, a jewel of an institution that I am uh, just thrilled to have been a part of, that I think is such a, uh, an important uh, part of the communities in which we live here in Western Massachusetts, and I want to welcome President Michelle Shute. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me, Bill and Buzz. Well, it is our pleasure. You are the 11th president of uh, Greenfield Community College, and you were a newbie the first time we had you on the show, but now it's 18 months later. You're a veteran. And I have to start with a question. And this is the end of 2023. We have about 10 days left in this year. And um, I've got to ask you, what do you feel are Greenfield Community College's most significant accomplishments in the last year? Yeah, so I think our biggest accomplishment is turning around a 13-year enrollment decline. 
Um, our fall enrollment is actually up 8.8% um, over previous the previous year. And um, finally, that, that decline is arching up. We're in great shape for spring. Um, currently, as of this morning, we are 19% up in headcount and credits over where we were at this point last year. So we're hoping for a positive spring as well. Uh, the gov Governor Marhealy uh, initiated what we call the Mass Reconnect. Um, could you tell us about Mass Reconnect and what, what, what influence does that have over those numbers you were just alluding to? Absolutely. Yeah, Mass Reconnect is a program offered by the state for those folks over 25 who do not have a previously earned uh, college degree. And um, there's a few additional stipulations to that program, but it has really done amazing things for residents of Franklin County. Um, currently, we have 69 students who have come back to us for Mass Reconnect, or come to us or come back to us for uh, under the Mass Reconnect umbrella. Um, and we're expecting that number to go up to about 85 for spring. Um, additionally, within the Healy administration, we've also seen a nursing scholarship, which allows for um, nursing students as well as pre-nursing students to get um, to come to college for free. And so we have 75 students in that program, and we have uh, 95 students being covered through Mass Grant Plus, an additional support from the state. So that comes to 239 students who are receiving substantial support through the state, which is significant for Greenfield as well as all the other community colleges. And I think for those lives, it will really change their life. But what about the prospect of free community college here in Massachusetts, regardless of your age? Yeah, so I'm super excited to have have been on the Free Community College Proposal Working Group, um, along with Senator Comerford and about 20 other professionals across the state. We just turned that report in last Friday to the Senate, and I understand we'll be meeting with them in January to talk um, more specificity and and make any sort of edits. We were also um, working with the consulting group, B BCG, Boston Consulting Group, on that project. And I'm really proud of what we turned in. Um, we did deep dives into what this will mean in terms of elevating our communities regarding the taxpayer base by having more educated citizens. We also talked deeply about the sustainability of the program, as well as um, the opportunities that it'll that will be presented, um, you know, in relation to what the state puts in and what the state will get back. And so I am so excited at the possibility of, of free community colleges, and it feels like a, a very viable option um, based on what we're hearing out of the Senate. Greenfield Community College President Michelle Shute, could you tell us what free community college means? Does it mean free tuition and uh, does it mean paying for expenses that people have? The problem often is not the cost of, of the, the courses. The problem often is how do you support yourself while you're taking the courses? That is a great perspective, Bill, and you're exactly absolutely right. We don't know exactly how this will shape out. We created three different proposals, um, all of which cover um, different differing elements. All of them cover tuition and fees, um, but to the level of support in relation to um, books and stipends and transportation and childcare, those are differing levels in each of the proposals. The other factor that we have to remember is the largest source of financial aid is federal aid. And for many community college students, 
they're eligible for Pell, and Pell is one of the largest um, the largest forms of support coming out of our federal government. And so, um, as it relates to state support, if a student is Pell eligible, they really need very little state support. And I think that's something that people sort of lose sight of sometimes too. For example, we've realized that um, of the three programs I just mentioned, um, Mass Reconnect, Free Nursing, and Mass Grant Plus, the average support from the state to those students for Greenfield Community College students specifically is about $1,700 a semester. That's significantly less than their overall bill, but that's because they had to complete a FAFSA and they qualified for federal aid as well. So there's a, a complicated um, intermeshing, if you will, of all of the different sources of funding. And that gives me hope because I don't want folks, you know, here in the Commonwealth to think we can't afford it. We can afford it when it's combined with other areas of support, such as federal aid. But you're exactly right. The tuition and fees are not what keeps students from college. It's all of the complications around, well, I have to give up my job. Who's going to watch my baby? My car isn't reliable enough, right? We've got to figure out the support structure and the proposal that we put forth does include those measures. I'd like to follow that up by asking your perspective on this aspect of community colleges. One, one goal of a community college is to uh, train and uh, educate people for jobs that will be available in the workforce after they complete their studies. Another goal of community colleges is to make their students eligible and, and equipped to go on to a four-year uh, degree. And what I learned uh, some years ago, and I remember being surprised to learn it, is that an enormous percentage, I believe it's 50% of all college students in the United States, 50% of all college students are in community colleges. They are a crucial piece of the educational uh, endeavors and, and puzzle in this country. And I'd appreciate your perspective on that. You are absolutely right. They are often the first step that many people uh, come into higher education with is some sort of interaction in community college, whether that be dual credit and early, early college for high school students, whether it be the returning student, whether it be someone who just needs some industry recognized credentials through workforce, which may not be credited, or those students who are preparing to transfer and are looking for a more economical option to get ready for that. Um, I think, you know, having lived in eight states myself, um, I've seen varying um, success around how community colleges are set up in, in relation to transfer versus terminal professional degrees. And that's an opportunity for Massachusetts is to really focus on those terminal professional degrees. We're doing transfer very, very well. And a lot of our students do transfer but some of them really want an opportunity to get a professional degree. And when I talk about professional degrees, I'm talking about things like automotive and surge tech and vet tech and culinary and things that don't necessarily have an automatic transfer pathway, but a two-year degree or less will get them on a path to family sustainable wages. And so when we look at who our high school students are, particularly in Franklin County, the only school that is full at this point is Franklin County Tech. That leads me to believe that a lot of parents and students are making choices towards a technical future. 
And therefore, at least at Greenfield, that's where we're looking to advance many of our programs. So my big, big goal for GCC is that we have five AAS, Associate of Applied Science degrees, added to our portfolio by 2025. And the reason for that is I want clear pathways for those tech students to find a future right here in Franklin County. We know the jobs are here. They just need a little bit more opportunity in terms of education. And so, you know, there is always going to be the opportunity in community college to transfer. We're good at it. It's solid. We've got the pathway down. There also needs to complement that pathway with opportunities for professional studies. We are talking with President Michelle Schutt of Greenfield Community College. And in terms of your goals for the future, in terms of, well, we're about to turn the corner into 2024. I want to talk about that goal, which you just talked about, and other goals. Uh, and what do you think GCC can be doing better? We're going to return to President Shoot right after this. More Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg coming up right here on WHMP. Tag, you're it. Tom Hartman, weekdays at noon. Tom Hartman Program, your home for the resistance, commentary, conversation, and common cause. Join me, Tom Hartman, every weekday from noon to 3, right here on WHMP. 1015 and 1400 WHMP. Are you looking for space to host a private event? The Hangar Pub and Grill has you covered. Our Amherst, Westfield, and Pittsfield locations are perfect for birthday parties, reunions, corporate events, and more. Customizable menu options make party planning a breeze at an affordable price. Enjoy our award-winning wings along with our other in-house favorites. And don't forget the Amherst Brewing Beer. Visit hangerpub.com events to book today. I'm dreaming of a white, non-sectarian, non-denominational, non-government-sponsored late December holiday. Hey, honey, come quick. It's the ACLU Carolers. I'm singer-songwriter Patty Larkin, and this is the Civil Liberties Minute with ACLU attorney Bill Newman. Tis the season, the silly season, the time of year when some claim that the ACLU is against Christmas because we and other groups that believe in religious freedom fight to maintain the First Amendment guarantee of a wall of separation between church and state. Separation of church and state has meant that religious symbols, including a creche, that's a structure depicting baby Jesus in the manger, can be displayed on private property. But that public property is reserved for all the people and not one specific religion. It's the First Amendment's Establishment Clause that has prohibited the government from endorsing, favoring, supporting, or trying to establish a national religion. Sadly, in 2022, the Supreme Court gave a gut punch to the Establishment Clause, holding that a high school football coach right after the game could conduct his Christian prayer service on the 50-yard line, which of course looked like a school-sponsored, that is government-sponsored, religious service, with some students feeling compelled to participate. Fortunately, most people still believe in separation of church and state, and the right to sing and listen to May your days be merry and bright, or not. The Civil Liberties Minute is made possible by the American Civil Liberties Union because freedom can't defend itself. Go out to eat, save 30%. Get a guitar or take lessons, save 30%. Pork chops, rug cleaning, hypnotherapy, save 30%. 
the Shop 30 store. Full value gift certificates to local restaurants and merchants, plus tickets and events. Just click, print, and save 30% on the stuff you were going to buy anyway. The Shop 30 store, open right now at whmp.com. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. And we are back. We are continuing our conversation with President Michelle Shute of Greenfield Community College. I am an unabashed uh, what worshiper of what it is that Greenfield Community College does, the lives that it has changed. I've seen it firsthand. And I, I want to ask you, um, President, how many full-time enrollees are there right now in Greenfield Community College? Uh, we have uh, 1,500 students, and this was for fall, 1,500 in relation to headcount, um, and 1,045 of those are taking 12 credits or more, so they meet the legal definition of full-time. And what is the graduation rate? How long does it take the average student to get through to an associate's degree or a certificate in a particular program at Greenfield Community College? That's a really challenging answer or question to answer, Buzz, because so many of our students um, make transitions with, I mean, many of them do graduate, some of them don't because they find that it's the right time for them to transfer before graduation. Um, some programs are really designed that it is in their best interest to transfer. So our fall to fall retention rate is um, 62%, which is quite high in the Commonwealth. Um, and our graduation rate in 150% of the time, which would be three years, is 29%. Um, that's also quite high So for community colleges. So we're very pleased. We're always looking to increase numbers. Um, but the, the transfer rate and the graduation rate out of community colleges is sort of a complicated um, quandary in our world. We are between semesters right now. How, how do people enroll? If people are interested in enrolling uh, at GCC, could you explain to them how they can take advantage of the, this beautiful college that we have right in our backyard? Yes. So you just head over to our website, um, and you will see a link for our virtual enrollment day, which is going to be held January 6th. Uh, I just heard the other day that we have, yesterday, that we have plenty of seats available in all classes. So um, encourage folks to get started as soon as they can with getting registered for that event. If you want to come in earlier, we're available to you. Um, if you haven't done a FAFSA yet, the free application for financial aid, I encourage you to start working on that as well. Um, Michelle Shute, a lot of students I know, um, not just as somebody who is a former professor, but also as somebody who lives in my community, a lot of young people in particular are not quite sure. They want to go to college. They're not quite sure why they want to go to college, what they want to do. What kind of services does GCC offer to help people explore the possibilities available to them? Yeah, that's a great question. So thanks to um, the state-supported success funds, we have certainly been able to bolster our student supports, and that includes a... Um, a strong advising team and enrollment team. We've also recently added a internship coordinator as well as, and we previously had a full-time career counselor. Um, there are all sorts of supports here at the college. Um, you know, in addition to those that are, are um, perhaps a little bit more for the exploring student, um, for our 
registered students. We also have a food bank, a women's resource center, student activities. Um, we've got, you know, a, a full package of supports available to our students. So Greenfield Community College President Michelle Shute, that response brings me to a question I have about the student body at GCC. And in particular, what I'm interested in is the way in which community college is first available to everyone, but secondarily, and as a consequence of that, uh, gets you to a student body enrolled because by and large, they want to be there. They're making something of a sacrifice to be a student there. And that self-selection process, I think, gets you to a student body that is actually quite unique in many ways. You're not in college because you're president, because you're president, because your parents told you to go. You're in college because, generally speaking, more often, you really want to be there. And I'd appreciate if you could share your thoughts about that. And if I've got it wrong, tell me. No, you do have it right, Bill. I'm, when we look at our demographics, um, we are 25% students under the age of 25. So, you know, if we think about 75% of our students are over the age of 25, that's, you know, at that point in your life, you're making some pretty intentional choices. Um, and you're, and community college is a great place to start with those choices. We have high flexibility, we have small class sizes, um, and it, it becomes a very nurturing place for folks who perhaps don't feel 100% confident or want to save some money and, and want to have that opportunity to go to college and then potentially transfer. Um, when we look at uh, when we look at our students of color, we're 27% students of color, which is also notable. And um, I believe that that really speaks to the supports that we're able to provide. Because we look at the whole student. We just don't look at, you know, they're in this course or that course. What do they need outside of going to class? In the minute and a half we have left, <laughs> President Shute, I've got to ask you this question. 2024 is right around the corner. What do you think GCC could have done better? What will it do better uh, if, if you have your way in 2024? Yeah, so we are actually looking to expand. Um, we know that there is great need in Northampton for additional um, additional educational opportunities and, the, and the, the Hampshire County region. So we are looking to secure some space in Northampton um, on a more permanent basis. We've had a presence there for a program. We are looking to expand the two liberal art offerings as well as workforce and healthcare. Um, and then, as I mentioned earlier, getting those AASs stood up, I think will be a great opportunity to broaden our offerings as well. So one more time, when will this virtual enrollment possibility be, be taking place? Yes, January 6th. So please check out GCC's website and get yourself enrolled. And some classes are available in Northampton. Did I understand that correctly? Uh, we currently have an LPN program uh, in Northampton, but we are losing our space. So that's why we're looking to um, make some different opportunities available. It's been available in Florence, and hopefully it'll be available again. Uh, President Michelle uh, Shute, thank you so much for joining us. Let's, let's not be strangers because uh, what GCC does is enhance the community, which we all live, and we're very appreciative. Thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Take care. Everybody else, thank you for joining us on Talk to Talk. We'll be here with you tomorrow.
The Food Bank of Western Massachusetts provides healthy food to families and individuals facing hunger in our region. And right now, with food insecurity the highest it's been in recent years, the Food Bank is distributing more emergency food than ever. Learn more about the Food Bank or get support for yourself and your family. Go to foodbankwma.org or call 413-247-9738. The Food Bank of Western Mass, committed to making sure our neighbors have enough to eat and leading the community to end hunger. Imagine working hard for so many years and reaching your retirement only to find out there's an issue with your pension or 401k. Unfortunately, it's a problem too many Americans face. The New England Pension Assistance Project can help you get the benefits you've earned by providing free legal help. Contact the New England Pension Assistance Project at 888-425-6067 or visit them online at pensionhelp.org slash New England. A public service from the U.S. Administration on Aging's Pension Counseling and Information Program. WHMP Northampton and WRSI HD2 